ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Hello, I'm Tom Gilson. Peter Robinson, host of the Hoover Institution's Uncommon Knowledge podcast, sat down recently with three of today's most thoughtful observers in the fields of faith, religion, and Western culture. It was historian Tom Holland, author Douglas Murray, and the Discovery Institute's own Stephen C. Meyer. The three don't share the same beliefs regarding Christianity's truth, but they all agree on its importance in shaping the West, and they have similar questions regarding the effect if and when Christianity's influence should fade here in the West even further. Today, we hear the first part of their conversation— Peter Robinson will introduce them further. Matthew Arnold, 1867. The sea of faith was once at the full, but now I only hear its melancholy, long, withdrawing roar. Tom Holland, a historian. Stephen Meyer, a scientist. Douglas Murray, an author. The God Question on Uncommon Knowledge Now. Welcome to Uncommon Knowledge. I'm Peter Robinson. Educated at Cambridge, Tom Holland is the author of many works of ancient history, including Rubicon, The Last Years of the Roman Republic, and Herodotus, The Histories, an original translation by a man who taught himself ancient Greek. I repeat, he taught himself ancient Greek. Tom Holland's most recent work, the 2019 volume, Dominion, The Making of the Western Mind, as the book is titled in Britain, or as the book is titled in the United States, Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. Stephen Meyer holds a degree in geophysics and a degree from Cambridge in the philosophy of science. Now a fellow at the Discovery Institute, Dr. Meyer has published a number of books, including just last year, Return of the God Hypothesis, Three Scientific Discoveries That Review the Mind Behind the Universe a graduate of Oxford, two Cambridge, one Oxford, actually two Oxford if you, if you count me, a graduate of Oxford, the author, Douglas Murray, publishes regularly in The Spectator magazine. He, too, has published a number of books, including his 2017 bestseller, The Strange Death of Europe, Immigration, Identity, and Islam. Douglas Murray's most recent book, published this very year, The War on the West, How to Prevail in the Age of Unreason. Hom. Stephen and Douglas, welcome. All right. In recent years, each of you has published work that establishes what? Not necessarily the truthfulness of any particular religious claims, but at least in our civilization, the size of those claims, the magnitude of those claims, the importance of the influence. So let's a, a discussion in two parts. Let me ask you in part one, each of you to discuss your work briefly, and then in part two, you'll explain to me what it means. Tom Holland, from Dominion, I was once more than ready to accept Edward Gibbon's interpretation of the triumph of Christianity, Gibbon, the author of The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. Gibbon's interpretation that Christianity had ushered in an age, quoting Gibbon, an age of superstition and credulity. But the more years I spent immersed in the study of classical antiquity, the more alien I found it. Explain that. Well, when I was a child, I was um, 
I, I was raised Christian, I loved the Bible stories, but the truth was that I actually preferred um, the figures of the great empires. So I was on the side of Pharaoh rather than the children of Israel. I was on the side of Nebuchadnezzar rather than the Judeans. I was on the side of Pontius Pilate, I'm ashamed to say, rather than Jesus. So I identified very strongly with, the, with, with particularly the classical civilizations of Greece and Rome. And so when I, um, uh, I grew up and left behind childish things, I nevertheless maintained my fascination with Greece and particularly with Rome. And that those were the subjects of the, the, the first books that I wrote. But um, as I said in the passage that you just read, uh, any sense I had that I was the heir of Greece or of Rome came under enormous strain because while, say, the Romans were a very moral people, it became increasingly clear to me that that morality was something very, very unsettling. Um, and the more I reflected on this, the more I kind of started thinking, well, what changed? Where do my, where do my instincts, where do my assumptions come from? Mm. And um, rather like someone, you know, you've, you, you, you've got an itch on your back and you're kind of trying to scratch it, and then finally I found it. I realized that essentially I, my friends, the country, the civilization I live in is actually not really the heir of Greece or Rome at all. It's, it's been profoundly and utterly shaped by Christianity to the degree that I would say, I say in the book, that, that we, all of us in the West, whether we are believers or non-believers, whether we are Jews, Muslims, Hindus living in the West, we are all of us in a sense goldfish swimming in Christian waters because Christianity has so radically affected our assumptions, not just about ethics or morality, but about the most basic way we, can, we, we contemplate society. The, the idea of the secular, the idea of there being something called religion. Mm -hmm. All of this is so shaped by Christianity that, that I think we remain in very, very fundamental ways, deeply Christian. Personal cultures. believers or not, it's still the water in which we swim. I think I think there's a case for saying that um, a, a logical endpoint of Christianity is a, is a kind of atheism that has been very evangelical over the past few uh, we'll, decades in the West. We'll come to that. Douglas, the war on the West. In considering the great cathedrals of Europe, you write, you could wonder whether the money used to build these structures was honestly acquired or whether some portion was taken illegitimately. Rather a knavish thought, really, but still. You could do all these things and more, or you could stand back and admire the Saint-Chapelle in Paris, the Capella San Severo in Naples, the Duomo in Florence, just down the hill from where we're sitting now. Why should we not simply stand back and credit our good fortune to have inherited these things? These are a gift to all humankind. Close quote. So the war on the West is in, at least in part a war on what? Do you want to say a Christian inheritance? How? Well, obviously the Christian inheritance is a huge part of it. I mean, as, as Tom Holland already said, I, the, the, what I regard as, Tom's a historian of the ancient world, and if I was to give myself a self-appointed title, I'd say I was a historian of the present. I mean, I'm trying to work out always in my books what's going on in our era. And... One of the things that seems to me undeniable of the last 20 years, for instance, has been actually an attempt to deny what Tom shows, proves in his book. We, we have wanted to show that we didn't need the Christian inheritance, even to say that it 
wasn't there, that we could get there through other ways, that um, uh, the, the, the ancients were enough or that the Enlightenment was enough. There was, a, there was a sort of willed effort to not need Christianity. And I think there's an interesting question there of, of why. And uh, there, is a, there is an answer to that, uh, which, is, which is something that's been posed and is known as Bockenforder's dilemma, which is can a culture continue to exist if it has cut itself off mm. from the thing which gave it birth? Now, the answer to that question may well be no. Could be yes. And the analogy I tend to use is, is maybe it's like sawing off the roots of a tree that you're sitting in. Um, however, it means that there is a, a, a desire on the part of some people to say, actually, we, we, that's not the tree that we're on. I think Tom's work proves, of course it is. Of course we, we are. We dream Christian dreams. We, 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 we swim in Christian waters. We're Christian whether we like it or not. Um, but nevertheless, this poses a big challenge uh, because for the, what we now are, the moderns, we have this, this dilemma of our own. Does that mean in that case we have to go back to faith? For many people, that's simply not possible, myself included. What happened in the 19th century happened. What happened in the 20th century happened. We are not where we were 300 years ago in terms of learning or philosophy or anything else. And, and what's more, there is this fear, and I'm sure this will come up at some point, there is a fear that whenever you credit this gap that exists today, people will say, well, in that case, believe. And yet, and, and that's, what, by the way, one of the assumptions that many people take away from Matthew Arnold's poem, which you started with, is the assumption, because, of course, Arnold talks about the, the, the long-withdrawing roar. Yes, yes, but, with, yes. but, but many people have said since Arnold wrote that, well, of course, the sea goes out and it can come back in again. Now, of course, Christian believers hope that's going to happen. And my, uh, my stance is we don't know. We don't know what it is we're going towards. Maybe we are in the position that people in the ancient world were when, in the end, people lost faith in the old gods. The temples were no longer visited. Something else took over. If you visit many churches in Europe, you can't help thinking that something like that must be underway at the moment. What do you do with these buildings in the center of all of our villages when nobody goes into them other than as items of archaeological well, interest? So, so, give me the name of the dilemma again. Bockenforder's dilemma. He's a, a distinguished German jurist of the late 20th century. Which is century. I'm having trouble catching the name because there's yeah. a in the middle. <laughs> all right. So what do you make of that dilemma? This, this notion that Douglas, the emptiness of the churches, I, we're shooting today, I should say, in, in Fiozele, Fiesole, Italy. I mispronounced that name every single time I said it when we recorded here three years ago. And it turns out we have Italian-speaking listeners. I've been correct. <laughs> you Fiesole, got corrected. <laughs> Fiesole. Here's what I discovered walking around Florence. The place down the hill. The place is mob. But the churches are beautiful, and they're cool, and they're empty. Lovely place to go for a walk. What do you make of that? Well, I, I, I see the, um, the repudiation or the, the decline of institutional Christianity. And the paradox is, my paradox, <laughs> for what it's worth, is, the that, that, is, that, that, is, is that that in itself is an expression of the distinctive character of, let's call it Western Christianity, Latin Christianity. Um, at, at the molten core of Christianity is the idea that you can be born again, that... Um, you can be washed in the baptismal waters and emerge a new being. 
And what happens very distinctively in the Latin West in the 11th century through the 12th century is that this paradigm is applied to the whole fabric of society. It becomes the ambition of, of radicals who seize control of the bishopric of Rome, the greatest um, see in the Latin world, that they will, they will cleanse the whole of Christendom, that they will uh, purge the, the radiant white robes of the church from the grubby, pouring hands of kings and emperors who also claim a stake in the dimension of the supernatural. And over the course of the Middle Ages, we see twin dimensions emerge. One of these dimensions is what, since the time of Augustine, has been described as the cyclum, which literally means the, the flux of time, people born on the flux of time heading towards oblivion. Um, that is the fate of fallen mankind. What can, how can mankind be redeemed from that? Well, it can be redeemed by the religio, the bond that can be join us to the eternity of heaven. And that is what the church provides. So for the reformers, there are these twin dimensions of the cyclum and religio. And over the course of the Middle Ages and then into the Reformation and into the modern period, this emerges to become idea of, of the secular and then of there being something called religion. But, um, what happens in the Middle Ages is that the, the kind of the lava of that initial rebellion, that initial process of reformatio, of reformation, calcifies. And the rebels of one age become the elites of, a, of another. And this generates the revulsion, Luther's revulsion, Calvin's revulsion, that generates the Reformation. And um, in the Reformation, you see what early Christians had done towards the Roman world, the, 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 the tearing down of idolatry, the banishing of superstition. Only now it is the, the Roman church that is seen as something to be torn down. Mm. That is a kind of abiding Christian impulse. Moving into the, the Enlightenment, into the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, you see exactly these same instincts. Only now it is, it's not just the Roman church that is the target of this, this, uh, this, this repudiation. It's the whole fabric of Christianity. But the instinct, the paradox, say, of the French Revolution is that when the revolutionaries are tearing down the, 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 the privileges and the, the, the fabric of Re the churches. Renaming Notre Dame, what was it, a temple of justice? Temple of reason. Temple yes. of reason, right. right. Yeah. Um, they're doing it for deeply, deeply Christian reasons. And that's why, I, I mean, I said at the beginning of this that there is, I think, a kind of inherent trend within Christianity that moves towards atheism because, you know, even before Christianity, the impulse of the Hebrew prophets is to condemn the gods of the Egyptians or the Babylonians as so much stock or stone. Um, and tell people that there are, you know, there is no divine manifest in springs or on the top of hills. The, the reformers are doing that in the Reformation. Materialist scientists now are doing that. The, the, the process of banishing the super, but of desacralizing the world yeah. is an incredibly Christian one. Surely we have, I think, sure, I say surely as if I'm sure of this. I'm not. Uh, Rene Girard would draw the distinction between Christianity proper and hyper-Christianity, which seizes upon and, and this was Girard's, the point you just made, as far as I understand it, was extremely close to, if not exactly the same point that René Girard was making, which is the hyper-Christianity is actually quite dangerous. There's a notion of egalitarianism in Christianity. The communists take that and take that value and blow it up and lose the sense of proportion, lose the, lose the larger it context of values. It becomes a secularized yes. form of religion so, that so, has so no So Douglas no writes in The War of the West, 
As Christianity has withdrawn, so one new religion in particular has found its way into the cultural mainstream. It is the new religion of anti-racism. With other grand narratives collapsed, the religion of anti-racism fills people with purpose and a sense of meaning. To eliminate Christian belief, how to put this, we cannot go back to a pre-Christian world. That at a minimum is, uh, uh, Tom's point is that at a, yes. at a very well, minimum. Well, right? we can though. We've, and we've tried it, in, in, certainly in Europe, with mm. fascism. Fascism was, on one level, deeply, you know, it was fascinated by the future. It was fascinated by tanks and airplanes and shiny new equipment. But it was also deeply back-looking. There was a conscious effort to go back to the pre-Christian well, world. Yes. So Mussolini is identifying Which, with, with, with Augustus. And Hitler, actually, unlike Himmler, Hitler was, was, was very much identified with both the Greek, the classical Greeks and the Romans. He saw them as, as, as Aryans. And Freud, 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 Freud made that statement that, that the Nazis were not... We're, we're some kind of hearkening back to the tr to the folk, sure, the pagan yes. past. Well, yes, yeah. And and by the way, I just add one other thing to that, um, which is what, what the, a point that David Berlinsky's made in, in, a, in a book that actually, you know, if you look back at the twentieth century, what what is the one thing that the the murderers, uh, gangs of Pol Pot, Hitler, and Stalin, and every other despot of the twentieth century, what's the one thing they all had in common? None of them thought that God was watching. But, Douglas, I, I, I would distinguish the Nazis from those inspired by communist ideology. Yeah. Communist sure. ideology bears the DNA of Christianity. That was millennial. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Because, because it's all yeah. about the last will be first, the first will yeah. be last. Yes, yes, you know, yes, Dives yes. and Lazarus, right. it's all that. It's a the secularized about, form of Christianity that, yeah. that denies yeah. that God is watching and with, with all deep, things are, are with lawful. With a deep strain yeah. of the apocalyptic, yeah. this idea yeah. that the world can be born again, uh, that New Jerusalem can be born. Mm -hmm. The thing about the Nazis is that unlike the French or the Russian revolutionaries or the Chinese revolution, well, the French and the Russian revolutionaries who were, who were bred of the matrix of a Christian society, unlike them, the Nazis consciously repudiate not just institutional Christianity, but the fundamental values of Christianity. Right. And they, right. Right. you know, Paul says there is no Jew or Greek. The, the idea of a kind of universal human dignity is fundamental to Christian ideology. They reject As that. As to Marx. But not to the Nazis. Yeah, right. but uh, and also the other the other core one, of course, that they reject is. And I said that the, the the image of the cross symbolizes the idea that the the tortured triumphs over the torturer. That is not what the Nazis believe. No. The Nazis believe that the strong should crush down the weak, mm -hmm. and they do it for, for for the Nazis. Do it not because they want to be wicked or evil. They do it because they think that is what is morally justified. If if I could make a couple of points, quickly, one thing is it's noticeable that we've devolved onto discussion of the Nazis, but there's a reason, which is that we also live still in the shadow of that. We certainly do. And, and Europe, where we're currently sitting, lives under a previous shadow as well. When Pope Benedict visited England, my friend Rabbi Jonathan Sachs uh, gave an address to Pope Benedict in which he said something very important. He said, the peoples of Europe didn't lose faith in God just simply because they lost faith in God they lost faith in the idea of the peoples of God being able to get on with each other. Europe, as people know, in the 16th century was a, a hellish demonstration of the fact that religion brought war, brought turmoil to societies. In the 20th century, 
we have to work out how we have God after this, and we're still working that out. We, we're nowhere near a conclusion if we could ever get to one. But it's, 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 it's interesting that everything must always be polluted by it, because it's another one of the reasons why the peoples of Europe and the peoples of the Christian world moved away from God. That's so, such an interesting observation, Douglas, because in essence he's saying that we, we've lost faith in God because we've become disillusioned with ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, there was an interesting piece in the New York Times a couple of summers ago by Ross Douthat, the very uh, thoughtful columnist there, who is also, uh, I think, a Catholic uh, believer. Mm -hmm. And he was raising the question, and it's the same question I'd like to raise, which is, on, uh, given all that's happened in the past and given the human failures and the, and the wars of the last century, um, is it yet still possible to rethink the God question? Because we didn't reject God because of a lack of evidence for the reality of God in creation or in our world. There's an, there is a, rather in, instead an there's an intellectual antecedent. There's the, the, the Enlightenment in the 18th and 19th century. There's the 19th century scientific materialism. But then there's also this background of, of uh, the, the human nature problem expressed in the religious wars. But if we look at the evidence itself, um, Historical or scientific? I mean, scientific evidence. Oh, right. and, I, and I also think there's been a great shift in philosophy away from, you know, there were these, these very facile disproofs of the possibility of the miraculous by people like David Hume and the Enlightenment. I think those are, you know, most philosophers regard those as, as very weak arguments indeed. But um, I think the scientific evidence to me, I, I had a long, myself, tortu tortuous uh, religious conversion. It took about seven years. It was anything but a Damascus Road experience. You know, I overthought everything, but finally settled. And, um, and it was soon after that that I began to encounter uh, these scientists at major meetings who were themselves having intellectual conversions to some form of theism and later even to, to Christianity. Alan Sandage, a notable figure, a great uh, longtime Jewish agnostic cosmologist whom I heard speak early in my scientific career, and he shocked the audience by explaining how he had come to a belief in God not in, not in spite of the scientific work that he did, but in large part because of it. He was one of the scientists who was documenting the expansion of the universe. And Douthat in this piece in the New York Times two summers ago said, you know, look, in light of some of these developments, he was talking about, he, well, the one he, he cited was the, the fine-tuning argument that the physicists are talking about, that the universe not only had a beginning, but it's been finely tuned against all odds and for no underlying physical reason to allow for the possibility of life. And some of these developments intellectually, I think, ought to cause us perhaps to rethink that default materialism or atheism that we all inherited okay. out of the so 19th now, century. Now we have two modes of thought taking place here, as far as I can tell. You're, re you're talking about the evidence, the scientific evidence. I don't know what, how, how you respond to that, but this, I'm, not a, I'm a layman. That strike me as very compelling. That has to be taken into account. That new evidence can no more be unknown or undiscovered, than can, mode of thought number two, just a moment. Remember the trenches in the First World War? Those were Christian nations. That was pre-Nazi. Those were all Christian nations engaging in slaughter of each other on an astonishing, massive oh, and scale. Oh, it's a huge question. Where were the statesmen so, to stop that? Where was God? It, it was, where was God? These are, it, these are things yeah. that also the history yes. cannot be unexperienced yeah, or unlived either. It wasn't either. just the Second World War. I mean, the Christian faith for many people died in the Somme. Um, but, but I think that something has to be observed here which is, of what Stephen says, which is that if, if you're a person of faith, let alone a person of the Christian faith, whenever a new discovery comes up, you will want it to bolster 
the argument you have. Now, the problem by, I can say is that many atheists will take the same line, or, albeit the opposite way, which was that they will hope that it will bolster their case. My own view, of course, remains we just don't know. And it seems to me that Christians will want the answers to be Christianity. Atheists will want it to be atheism. But the, the mode that our own age should try to be in should be to simply be open to these questions. So I, I completely so, agree. So, so, hold on, hold on. I'm going to reassert control and, and give the first question. Nope, 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 nope. <laughs> it, it'll get more interesting. Excellent. So to, to take this, here's what I'd like to know. What I'd like to pursue next is, what do we need, A, and B, what is intellectually tenable at this stage? In the, the scientific discoveries cannot be unknown, and the horrifying experience of the 20th century cannot be unlived and should not be forgotten. Okay, two quotations. George Washington, and this is coming to you, George Washington, farewell address. Reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principle. National morality. He's talking about an old-fashioned idea, virtue. Tom Holland in Dominion. In the ancient world, quote, even skeptics who scorned the possibility that a fellow mortal might truly become a god were happy to concede its civic value, close quote. Whether you believe in Christianity or not, all three of you grant that that is our moral, that is, those are the moral waters we swim in, do we need to behave as if it were true? How do you sustain the kind of civic virtue that everybody senses a decent society needs? Well, so this is, this is, this is the question that um, Nietzsche, who, uh, whose writings were taken, were given by the German government to soldiers marching to the, to the Western Front, that he has posed most kind of challengingly, I think. And essentially, he is, he is saying, can you have um, Christian values, Christian ethics, Christian morality without Christian belief? And his, his take, which has been very, very influential on me, is that communists, socialists, um, liberals, Nietzsche was particularly contemptuous of the, um, the English-speaking brand of liberalism, um, are essentially... Um, Christians, monkey, they, they, they think that they have cast off Christianity, but they haven't really. And Nietzsche's great parable is that God is dead, that right. his corpse lies in a great cave, but that um, the corpse is so enormous that it continues to cast shadows and these flicker and change and, and we continue to see them. But that in the long run, this will generate convulsive process of change. Mm. And... To, to be honest, that prophecy came true in, in the Third Reich. Uh, it, came, it, it came true much faster than he thought. And I think the shock of that was so great for us that in a way, Nazism served to create a new mythology. So if you like, the shadow that is flickering on our current cave is actually the, the shadow of God that's flickering on the shadow of the cave, flickering on the cave is, is, um, is, is a Nazi one. Mm. And rather than, rather than the devil now, we have Hitler. Rather than hell, yes. we have Auschwitz. Yes. And that is why we are haunt, so haunted by the Nazis. That's yes. why Douglas said, you know, I can't believe we got onto the Nazis already. We but I mean, we're bound to. Because I think before the, before the Third Reich, people, even if they weren't 
Christian, they would accept Christ as the kind of the, the moral exemplar, and they would say, what would Jesus do? Mm. I think by and large, people now say, what would Hitler do and do the opposite? Yes. Yes. And people, people accuse, you know, the, the, the joke you go on, on, you know, you go on social media, within three seconds, people will accuse you of being a Nazi. This is yeah. the, the kind of the great joke. But the, it's, it's, it's similar to the readiness that, that people in earlier ages might have said, you know, to, to, to accuse people of being in hot with the devil or whatever. Yes. Um, and, and, but we, we fear and dread and loathe the Nazis for deeply, deeply Christian reasons. Because the question that none of us ever really pause to think is, well, what was so wrong with what the Nazis said? What was so, what's so wrong with being racist? What's so wrong with trampling down the weak? By the way, our friend David Berlinski says the Holocaust was like the crucifixion. It was an event that changed everything. Yes. Which is fair. Of course. Right. I mean, um, in Celan's most famous poem, there's a terrible line, remember, Tot is dein Meister auf Deutschland. Mm -hmm. Death is a master from Germany. All right. So, back to you. While I've got these two Englishmen all around this side. So, Charles, King, now King Charles, gives a speech. Douglas is now an American. I'm not an American. I reside. You reside in America. You reside in America. I, pa English I pass. You yes. in New York. You don't pass. You don't pass for one <laughs> second. Pass. You don't pass for one second. Charles, King Charles, it is the year 2022, and the evening his mother dies, the evening of the day on which he has become king, he gives an address to the nation in which he speaks about the special relationship of the crown to the Church of England. Mm in which his own faith resides. The role and the duties of monarchy also remain, as does the sovereign's particular relationship and responsibility towards the Church of England, the church in which my own faith is so deeply rooted. This is what? A hopeless anachronism? Useful to the nation to continue some sense of continuity with the Christian, with the eight English Christian inheritance. What do you if, do with this? If I could try to tie that up with what you said earlier about, and of course, Thomas Please. Jefferson took the, the view that the civic virtues of Christianity were such that you could pretend to do it effectively, even if you didn't do the believing. And there's an interesting, I mean, there are people who believe in belief. I might be one of them. It's, it's something that uh, people can do. It's a good thing. It's all all the not, data. Not a crazy position. All the data shows right. that you're going to be happier if you're a believer uh, and and much more. Um, in 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 Britain, the established church has a very distinctive function, which is to effectively own, reign in. How would you put it? Um, somehow, yes, temper the enthusiasm of religion contain it within the state. It's, it was a very important uh, um, statement that he made. Uh, King Charles had in the 1990s toyed with this idea that he would, rather than take the title defender of the faith, would somehow be the defender of faith. Right. And, this, and this, this is interesting because, of, of course, our own age has got a lot of sort of syncretic religion running through it, you know. Um, uh, hybrids of bits yeah. of Christianity, a yeah. bit of Buddhism, a bit of usually a bit of quite a large bit of Buddhism. And, um, and there was a sort of idea, maybe he's going to do that, in which case several things, including the established church, would have actually been in serious trouble. Right. He resisted that. He did a thing, I think, which is correct, is to say, no, this is, the, the, this is one of the titles I've inherited, and I'm the defender of the faith. And that's just what we've inherited in England, in Britain. 
Okay. So, so, I mean, just just specifically on um, the mystery of uh, royalty and Christianity, I think that one of the problems for, for institutional Christianity for the churches is that in a way they've been too successful, mm. that their teachings have in a sense been nationalized. So particularly in, in European countries, perhaps more than the United States, but still in the United States, um, education, health, all these kind of things that previously were uh, the responsibility of churches have now, you know, th- th- they've been secularized. And in a sense, the church itself has been secularized. Mm. It's, it's, it's the, the instinct, I think, of uh, certainly in, in a national church like the Church of England, of many of the priests is to um, identify with the uh, the kind of the preponderant ideology of the of the age, which is a secular one. My own personal feeling is that that's a terrible mistake, mm. and that Christianity is nothing if it's not spectacularly odd. If 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 the strangeness, the weirdness, the mystery is not given space to breathe, and that comes across and, so beautifully in your writing, Tom. Well, but but, the, but so it struck the, the me. The preface of your book uh, it, it really is jar- jarring because if you swim in Christian waters and you forget just how how odd it is, how odd it but, is. But yeah. but it struck me very powerfully with the funeral of the Queen mm. that um, people were being touched by the strangeness of it, mm. by the sense that you know the Queen was anointed. This is a ritual that goes back. Um, a thousand years in England, but ultimately goes back to ancient Israel, to, to David and to Solomon. Yes. And people felt themselves touched and moved by something strange that they didn't understand. And it was a rare moment where a sense of the weird was allowed to enter into the very heart of the state, and, and people were stirred by it. And I think that it would be a terrible mistake for the new king if he, you know, if, look, if, if assuming he wants the monarchy to survive, and indeed the Church of England to survive, if he was to stint on the str- element of the strangeness within the coronation, I've I think got, he should absolutely I play agree, it but, yeah. so, I've got a very quick observation as well, if I may. Uh, um, I completely agree with what Tom just said. There's a specific difficulty for Christians, which I, I, in certain other religions doesn't exist. And let me give an example, which is Judaism. Uh, some years ago, I said to a rabbi friend, an Orthodox rabbi friend, I said, would you, a rather rude question, but I said, would you agree that many people who come to your synagogue do not believe in God? And he said, uh, oh, most I'd have thought. And I said, well, what lesson do you draw from that? And he said, this year in the UK, 98% of British Jews will be celebrating the holy days. Now, I say that because in Christian terms, when we, when there are reasons why Jews can be practicing without being believing. And there was a debate there a about believing take that and deal. belonging. Well, yes, but what does it mean to be a Christian who wants Christian tradition to continue, mm-hmm. but cannot go to the church or thinks other people can go for them? All right. Well, this is what I appreciate about these two gentlemen so much is that they both have this deep appreciation of the importance of Christianity and, and genuine belief in God. And at least in Doug's case, Douglas's case, sorry, can't quite get themselves over the line to belief. I don't quite know where, where Tom stands on that, but I, I'm used to engaging these uh, very angry uh, atheists who hate Christianity and hate belief in God. But uh, in, a, in a piece I did for the Jerusalem Post last summer, um, <clears throat> eulogizing the great physicist Steven Weinberg, I talked about this, that there was the, the old new atheists, you know, the Richard Dawkins and Weinberg was one of them, uh, Sam Harris and uh, Christopher Hitchens, 
but there's a kind of new, new atheist, uh, people who authentically lament the loss of Christian belief in the Christian or, or a, of a theistic foundation, a Judeo-Christian foundation for our culture, but authentically also can't themselves come to belief. And I, I have hoped that m my own work might open up that discussion in a new way so, because so, we've inherited all this baggage from the Enlightenment and the rise of scientific materialism, you know, figures like Darwin, Marx, and Freud from the late 19th century who so shaped the worldview of the 20th century. And yet I think there's, there is a, a very legitimate and genuine uh, intellectual uh, opportunity to, to reassess these deep questions apart from the baggage of the religious wars. And uh, you know, within Christianity, I think there is, there is a framework for explaining even how Christians can end up resorting to violence against each other because there is this deep uh, uh, teaching about the fallenness of man and the, that, that affects us all. The human nature problem is not eliminated simply because you believe in Christianity. But on the other hand, I think the materialists lack the intellectual framework to account for the extraordinary evidence that we have of design in the universe and of the, the, for the creation of the universe and these fundamental questions that we have assumed science has already uh, adjudicated are, I think, being reopened by discoveries that have frankly shocked us. And even Richard Dawkins has acknowledged this. Um, it, it, last summer he talked about the, the, he was knocked sideways with wonder at the discovery of the, the digital signal or the digital processing of information inside cells. It was not anything so, he expected from his blind, pitiless processes. Stephen, let me hit you. Yeah. And I do mean to hurl it at you. Excellent. With a passage from St. Paul. This is 1 Corinthians 15. Speaking of odd, I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again. The third day, according to the scriptures, that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present. Close quote. So St. Paul is right there, ruling out the easy ethical option. Christ is the great teacher. We can take certain messages, uh, follow his exa example. What would Jesus... No, that's not all. He is insisting that Christians believe in the resurrection well, He's, he's of a, appealing to the of testimony of eyewitnesses. And he is appealing to the testimony. He is saying, in effect, he's if you don't believe me, there's still several hundred people still alive. He's appealing to the testimony that had the greatest weight in Roman law and still has the greatest weight in our law, which is eyewitness he's, testimony. He's appealing to what we and, would call today an empirical basis for faith. Okay. And we so, have ruled that possibility out largely because of developments in Enlightenment philosophy the secular Enlightenment philosophy, people like Hume, who said that miracles were impossible, and, uh, and because of developments in the 19th century in science which suggested that God did not exist, the rise of materialism. The, the, the miraculous accounts in the Bible are a great offense to the intellect of people who have been, who have, you know, who've been right. trained in schools like we've all been to, because we've inherited a worldview that says miracles are impossible, and that worldview is materialism. The probability of a miracle, given scientific materialism or scientific naturalism or scientific atheism is your worldview is zero because a miracle is an act of God. If God does not exist, there's no possibility of, of, of a miracle. And then when you read those docu the, the documents of the, uh, of the, the Tanakh, the, the, the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, you necessarily have to simply deduce that the, 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 the events that are recorded 
could not possibly have happened because there, there, because miracles because are possible, and there is happen. no, there is no God to exist. Right. But if there is now a case, and I, I, I don't think there's ever not been a case for the reality, the, the, the reality of God. But I think the case has gotten so strong, and scientific atheism has become so itself so weird in opposing it. We, we now have the multiverse hypothesis as an, as a, an alternative to the evidence of design we have in the fine tuning. When I, my main work has been about the evidence of design in, at the foundation of life in biology, the digital code that's in the DNA. And to explain that, this, the, the, uh, the chemical evolutionary theorists and secular evolutionary biologists are, have not come up with an evolutionary account of the origin of information. Some of them are now talking about the, the information coming from a space alien, the, the so-called panspermia hypothesis. And so you're getting this very strange way in which it's now scientific atheism that is engaging in the formulation of ever more epicycles of, of, of strange so hypotheses. So your point is... My point that, is the belief in theism is again incredible. Let, let me frame it up. Yeah. Your point is that Big Bang, the discovery of the fine-tuning, the discovery of unbelievably complex code, even in the simplest forms of life, that makes a belief in resurrection, Orthodox Christianity, intellectually respectable. It makes a belief in theism very credible. And if there is, and that changes the prior probability, as the philosophers would say, of a miracle. And that means you have to reassess those those uh, those biblical texts on straight up historical grounds without having a presupposition that precludes the possibility that there is historical support for the events recorded therein. Do you buy any of this? Well, what I, what I would say, I, to, to slightly spin what Stephen's saying in, in, in a different way, All right. is that. Um, it's not as though secular liberals, whether they're atheist, agnostic, or whatever, aren't equally capable of believing weird, mad things. Um, and, you know, and, and talking about, about you know, alien seeding, I mean, that's quite odd. But I would say that also very odd is, say, a belief that human beings have rights, the idea that human rights exist. Um, most people in the West believe in human rights, but human rights don't exist objectively. I mean, they're, they're as fantastical as believing in angels. And they have a very specific, you know, their origins are very specifically rooted in Christian theology. It's, it's, it's formulated by the lawyers who are in the wake of the great revolution of the 11th and 12th century are trying to construct a fabric of framework of law for the Christian people. And they look to the scriptures and they see that Christ teaches that those who are rich should, um, you know, give shelter and food and water and clothing to the poor, and they deduce from that the instinct that the poor therefore have rights to these things. And this sets in train this incredibly fertile notion that human beings have rights. Now, people today are very reluctant to face up to the idea that this is a very culturally contingent idea rooted in Christian theology, medieval Catholic theology. And so they say, well, you'll find uh, the you know, human rights that's in China or Greece or Rome or whatever, but it isn't. And I think that um, what I have found meditating and reflecting on the, inher the incredible inheritance of Christian theology and practice and liturgy and all kinds of things is that I want to believe in the things that I believe in as a secular humanist. I want to believe in human rights. And if I can believe in that, there are times where I think, well, I might as well be hanged for a, for a sheep as a lamb. If I can believe in human rights, then why can't I believe in angels? Can, can we, Stephen and I push you then on your belief? Well, uh, so 
as a historian, there, in the West, you are the heir to two different traditions. You're the heir to the Greek tradition of history, in which, to be honest, the gods don't play much role. Certainly, they're present in Herodotus. They're, they're virtually invisible in Thucydides. But um, you also have the, uh, the tradition of history that you get in, in, uh, in the Bible, where events are shaped by the hand of God. And those are traditions that feed through into the Western inheritance of, of, of history. Um, I would absolutely identify myself as a, as a historian with the Greek tradition. I don't think that it's my role to, um, to identify the hand of God. I, I try to explain um, Christian history in human terms. But having said that, I have found the experience of, of, of immersing myself in the history of Christianity and the examples of Christian history often to be unsettling. You know, it often is. But I think, why do I, even when I'm unsettled by Christian history, I realize that it's for Christian reasons. If, if I'm, if I'm that, unsettled, so if I'm unsettled by so, the Inquisition, it's yeah. because they are killing innocent, you know, it's, it's powerful people killing innocent, an in, innocent person. And, you know, the, the, why do I, why the, am I revolted by that? The cruelty of the ancient world, well, well, the, 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 the Greco-Romans would not have worried about those same types of events well, in the as, way as, we do. as Dostoevsky, Which, you know, in yes, his great, yes, yes. great story about the Inquisitor, yeah. Christ, you know, if, if you as an atheist are, enshrine the Inquisition as a model of something horrific. It's for Christian reasons. It's because you are, you are, you are shaped by a culture that has had an innocent person put to death by a state apparatus okay. at the heart. Well, can I, can I so, just, yes, so, yes, yes, yes. And, and, and so therefore, I feel that my, the, the, the kind of the bundle of my instincts, my beliefs, my presumptions are generated by this incredibly mysterious Christian inheritance. And I am very, very much, I'm very open to accepting that there is a strangeness there that I don't want to deny. All right, you know what? May I, Thank you. May I That's, talk about two types of strangeness at some point? But Douglas oh, yes, is yes, trying yes, to get Yes, yes, you get dibs yeah, on two, two points of strangeness. By so, the way, when you quoted St. Paul and yes. you were talking about that, Am I right, uh, Tom? Who's the, the ancient uh, um, who sees St. Paul and recorded it? Somebody, isn't there a, there's a physical description of St. Paul. I don't think there? so. There, are, there right? are medieval letters in which yeah. Seneca and St. Paul are supposed yeah. to have communicated, but I don't think it's interesting. Been... Douglas, so, anyway. so, can, so you would not, uh, A, it is possible, but you do not yourself. It is possible for a withered intellectual of the year 2022 to believe in a resurrection. B, it's not possible. C, it's none of my business, and I shouldn't even be asking that question because somehow or other that violates protocols. I think all protocols. things are possible. I, I mean... <laughs> but you see I, what I'm saying. I, I, th I think this that is a very being, a, claim. being a philosopher um, um, and uh, practicing believing Christian has been uh, a tension for many years now. I mean, uh, it's it's... It's not as though they don't overlap or can't overlap, but it definitely suffers a tension that it wouldn't have done, say, 400 years ago. Um, the, my main problem is that nobody wants to admit um, what they don't know. And there's a, there's a tendency towards dogmatism on all sides uh, in our age. And one of those, the consequences of that is, for instance, I mean, Christianity is, you, you, if you use it as a basis and an explanation for, for life, you also have to explain why the religion's central tenet is the, um, the 
complete inverting of, of the thing we know most of all, which is death. Uh, this is in itself a massive claim, but it's fueled 2,000 years of faith. Now, the claiming that the whole cosmos can, be, can rip, as it were, is, is what has fueled the Christian faith. It is that it is an unbelievable thing that has happened, which millions and millions of people still on earth, of course, believe. But if I can say, this is why, this is why I, I favor that, um, the argument that uh, Habermas made some years ago, this, what he described as the awareness of what's missing, because it's the other flip side of that. The, the unwillingness of the modern West to admit that there is this God-shaped hole in the culture. We have songs where people talk about angels, people talk about being reunited after death, and what say, in what metaphysical system are you doing this? Like, what's the game you're playing here? I would just like people to at least concede that they need to use Rilke, they need to live in the questions in the hope that at some point they live their way into the answer. And we will stop it there, and we'll continue with the remaining portion in our next episode coming soon. That was Peter Robinson of the Hoover Institution speaking with three eminent scholars on faith and culture in the Western world, Tom Holland, Douglas Murray, and Stephen C. Meyer. Stay tuned for the rest of this fascinating discussion soon to come, and be sure to send friends along to ID the Future to listen along here at idthefuture.com. For ID the Future, this is Tom Gilson. Thank you for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.